I hope you love the Bible. I hope you love the Bible story. It's very, very important, as I've said to you on many occasions, to know the context, to have the context in mind. Um, we're talking about being transformed by the gospel. And uh, we've, in, in the past, laid out some kind of big points, some major points about the gospel. We've said things like, um, like God, man, Christ, restoration, maybe simple words, maybe that helps you. My little mantra doesn't help anybody, but I like it anyway because it's Bible. We were created good, we fell badly, we're restored rightly, and glorified joyfully. The reason I like those, at least I'm sticking with it, maybe it's, a, it, you know what it's like, it's like one of those bad songs back in the 60s, you know, that, I mean, you just wonder how in the world this thing even got on the radio. But if you hear it over and over and over again, somehow it climbs the charts. So maybe my little mantra will climb the charts. It's interesting in the big pictures, in the big explanation of the gospel, how many parts of the big picture, even from the G in Genesis to the N in Revelation, how many parts of it are front-loaded? That is, they're, they're so close to the beginning of the Bible. We have creation, fall, flood, tower, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph sold into slavery. Moses leads them out, gets the Ten Commandments, tabernacle in the wilderness. They wander around in the wilderness until finally Joshua leads them into the land. They have a period of judges with no king. We want a king. So they finally get a king. They get King Saul who serves God with only half a heart, David with a whole heart, then Solomon. But after Solomon, his son Rehoboam caused the country to be divided. And now Israel goes to the north and Judah goes to the south. Israel never had a good king. And so God appointed the Assyrians, A, to come down and attack them and carry them away. The the two tribes to the south, Judah, sometimes they'd have a good king, bad king, good king, bad king. Finally, God said, that's enough. I'm taking you out of the land, but not by the Assyrians, but the B, Babylonians. And they were taken out of the land, but only for 70 years when they were allowed to come back in under Ezra and Nehemiah. And then we have a period of about 400 years of prophetic silence. And then we have the birth of Christ and, of course, the life of Christ and the death of Christ and the burial and the resurrection of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit and the spreading of the gospel all around until one day John the Apostle stands on the Isle of Patmos looking up into heaven and God gives him the revelation. That's the Bible. That's the Bible. And here we are in Genesis chapter 3, and we're already getting, well, if we look close enough, we're actually getting three of the major points when we talk about the structure of the gospel right here in the first three chapters of Genesis. I want to 
see that with you in the text. I want us to look through it as we're in our second chapter entitled Rebellion. Rebellion. This is what we call the first, the original sin. Take a look with me, please, in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read, to begin with, the first seven verses. Let's do that together. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Sin. What is sin? What is sin? Sometimes we understand something better by what it's not. Let's play with that just a little bit. You see in your sermon guide on the back of your bulletin, what sin is not. Reading an article by Al Mohler this week entitled Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. Sounds like an academic kind of a thing. It's happening in many, many, many of our churches. Uh, this therapeutic deism, it's what ails you. It's, it's, it's as if what we do when we come into church is we, we figure out in some sense what is broken and, and then we have a motivational speech we have a, a therapy group. We have some means by which we can talk about this together, share our hurts, our pains together, and by doing so, we feel better and we grow. Or better yet, what uh, Christian Smith, that's his name, Christian Smith, from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, <clears throat> Tar Heels, oh. I'm sorry. As, as described by Christian Smith, this is what he says moralistic therapeutic deism is. He's got five short things. A God who exists, who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. I'm okay. Created everything, watches everything. Not as strong as I'd like, but... Okay, number two. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Mm. Number three, moralistic deism. Um, the central goal of life is to be happy 
and to feel good about oneself. Oh, that's what I We need people to be happy. And I'm, I'm okay. All right. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Okay. You see... Well, I'll read the last one because it is a soapbox with me. And when I say that, that means I'd like to go off on it and I probably shouldn't. Good people go to heaven when they die. Good people go. It's not a complete violation. I hope that you're good. But that's not why you go to heaven when you die. I, I listen to so many sermons and, and people go to so many churches and we're going to help you to overcome your anger or your loneliness. I listened to a, a quote-unquote sermon not long ago about loneliness. There's a lot of statistics quoted about loneliness and, and I think that it's very true. I think we can be surrounded by crowds of people and still be very, very lonely. Yet if we don't enter into the solution being what's coming in these verses, at least in chapter 3, I wish I could come up with a better illustration, but it just doesn't happen in my head. Once again, we are rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Oh, I can make you feel better while you're going to hell. If we believe what the Bible says, then we know that there's much more time coming. One day is a thousand years. A thousand years is one day. In fact, it's eternity that's coming. And so we want solutions. So it might help you to know that sin is not just a violation of some moralistic, theistic kind of uh, deism that's going on. And, and actually, illness is not sin either. This gets confused from time to time, especially when it enters into the addiction realms. People treat sin as if it is a disease. If sin is a disease, then all we need is a pill. If sin is a disease, all we need is some medical remedy for it. If it's only what it is. I realize that it has some characteristics it's very pervasive. And when we talk about uh, diseases, and even the Bible does do some analogies with diseases. You know, what, what does Jesus even say? The, the person who's well doesn't need a doctor. He's implying he has come to help the sick. But a closer look at the context is going to let you know that he indeed is talking about spiritual sickness in those cases. If... if sin is just illness if it's just a disease then we don't need a heart change all we need is a pill maybe what sin is is just failure to do the right thing I hear that from time to time I'll say so folks what's sin uh, disobedience to God oh, okay well I'm not opposed to that disobedience to God disobedience to God's law sometimes that I'll hear but there's a part of that that at least is incomplete. If it's only a failure to do the right thing, then does that include loving God too little? Is that what our problem is? We love God too little. 
Well, I think when you're talking about the subject of sin, that's not the problem. What the problem is, is in a comparison. Do I think that we love God too little? Sure, we do. But in this context, what the problem actually is, is that we love other things more than we love God. That's where the sin comes in. We love other things more than we do. God. So that takes me to then what is sin? What, what, help me out with that. What is sin? I like Piper's words here, so I know we invoke his name from time to time. But uh, in my opinion, one of, if not the best, theologian pastors of our age. And so I have no problem in quoting it. The human heart hates a vacuum. The human heart hates a vacuum. We never merely leave God because we value him too little. We always exchange God for what we value more. Look at the text. If we go back into the text and see what God created in chapter 1, and what did he say? And it was, 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 and it was very good. Very good for you. Of course, I had to hold up the fingers. And he said, it's very good. Oh, I believe that. I like John Frame's theology in which he talks about the, the sovereignty of God. And he loves these tripartite descriptions of God, that he's sovereign, that God is authoritative, and that God is good. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Wow, if we believe that, then when we get to the place where she says, she looked at it, and, and, and it was good for this, and it was good for this, and it was good for this. What is sin? What is sin in this context? Go back with me, would you please, at verse 3. You shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God. There's every sin ever committed by every human being. There's every sin. Right there, in those words, lies everything. Every, the, the root of every sin ever committed by everyone who's ever lived. At the very root of sin, what sin is, is believing that God is cheating me out of something. That's what a temptation is. When that temptation begins to move in, by definition, it looks good. This temptation says, wow, I'd sure like to watch that movie. Ooh, I'd like to do that thing. I'd like to be there. I'd like to have that. But at the root, under the surface of that is, <clears throat> God's holding out on me. God doesn't want me to have that. Uh, God knows that if I watch this, oh, this is great. I mean, it's not great, it's terrible. Every man, some women in the room, 
when it comes to this issue of pornography that is so tempting all around the place. We'll sit there and rationalize. This will help me to love my wife better. This will help me to love my husband better. Let me tell you what's happening in that moment. You are believing a lie. And I just use that as an illustration. It's so pervasive in our culture. You are, you're doing the exact same thing that Eve is doing. Look at it a little bit closer with me for just a second. Did God actually say, backing up, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Maybe he was around, we don't know. This is being written, we believe, by Moses. Moses doesn't come on the scene and talk with God about anything until Exodus chapter 3. In other words, he's a long way away from this. God revealing it to Moses down the line, Moses is going to turn back and write in retrospect about this. So we've got to be careful of applying too much modern-day history writing, modern-day historiography uh, points and values to this particular text. We don't have every single detail that went on here. But when we look at this, we see, did he actually say he can't eat of any of the tree? We don't know whether he was around when God said, this is what you can do and this is what you don't, but it is implied that this is the one tree that you cannot eat from. We may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden. And then we say, well, oh, she says, and, and we can't touch it. A lot of preaching has happened about this and can't touch it. It's as if most of the time Eve is castigated. Oh, when I go back into chapter 2 and read, it says that God only said you can't eat from it. He didn't say anything about not touching it. So Eve is like already, mm, I don't like this. Well, you run into some theological problems there. If Eve is already at that point, questioning God then sin is already there perhaps well maybe God did say don't touch it again we don't have every detail but I will say this I will say this about the nature of sin don't get near it don't get near it I, I love Psalm 1 it helps me to understand the progressive nature of sin Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the path of the sinner, nor sit in the seat of the scoffer. That's poetry, but it's what we call escalating poetry, stair-stepping or escalating Hebrew poetry. And, and the picture is this person is walking in town. They've come to the central marketplace. Often in a Middle Eastern city, they could be a circle. There could be a, a, a pool or some water in the middle. And out from it go the roads, meat down this section, vegetables down this section, housewares down this section. And so you would walk around like a wagon wheel and you'd go this way or you'd go that way. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the godly. Those ungodly people are right there. They, they go down that road right there. How blessed is the man who doesn't go this way. But you see, if a man goes that way, nor stands, aha, now he's standing where they are. And then finally, what does he do? Ah, he sits. And he sits in what? 
He's not merely walking that direction. He's not just standing listening to them, but now he's sitting and doing what? He's scoffing. Each step increases. Each step increases. And this is the nature of sin. So, okay, maybe the text is meant to say of Eve, oh, well, God said not to touch it, and already we see her moving away from God. I have a problem with trying to figure that out since she hasn't actually already committed what the Bible describes as that act that does it. Maybe it's in her heart. I don't know. But I will say, before you just pick it up and throw it out, stay away! You know what it is. You know what it is in your life. I guarantee you know what it is. And you know, and you probably also know that as long as I don't do blank, I'm okay. I mean, and the blank is a good thing. As long as I don't click there, I'm going to be okay. Once I click, I'm sucked in because sin is progressive and it escalates. And that's what happened here. What is sin? Sin is valuing anything in thought, word, or deed above God. Sin is valuing anything, thought, word, or deed, above God. And if I were to say to you in a, in a Christian uh, spiritual formation, what helps you in your life, I'd add something to it. I'd say, I'd say that sin is valuing anything, thought, word, or deed, above God in the moment. In the moment. Because we can wax eloquent about theory. We can wax eloquent about philosophies, even theologies. But we need boots on the ground in the moment. And so you ask yourself before you click, before you do whatever it is, Am I valuing this above God? Am I valuing this above God? Well, take a look at what the text says about how we are going to fix it. Look a little bit further. And they heard in verse 8, the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife themselves hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What's the first thing that they did then to fix it? Because we're great fixers. We want to fix it. We feel bad now. Now we've done it. Now we've done it. What do we do first? We want to hide. We want to hide. We want to cover it up. We want to cover over it. Whether it's mentally, rationally, okay, all right, well, well yeah, that'll help me to love my wife better. Uh, okay, you know, that's just money from the, from the company that I can get back in there tomorrow. I can, oh, and I begin to just rationalize away. And they heard him walking and, and they hid themselves. They don't want to be in the presence of God. This happens throughout Scripture. I'm at least reminded of a couple of biblical illustrations that I like. There's Isaiah standing in the temple, the grand temple of Solomon. The glory of the Lord filled the temple, the Bible says. Uh, it's just like as if the, the radiance was everywhere. And, and, what, and what was Isaiah's response? Woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the land of a people of unclean When you come into that kind of presence of the holiness of God, 
think of Peter in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, he's been fishing all day. Oh, excuse me, he's been fishing all night. He's been fishing all night. It's morning, and Jesus comes walking along the road. And he teaches a little bit. He says, Jesus, push, push out a little ways from the shoreline there because people are crowding in like this. So he gets out in about six feet of water. He can get some distance to teach the people. Okay, he taught the people. Now, Peter, what I want you to do is go on out into the lake and let's catch some fish. Oh, man. We've been fishing all night. We haven't caught a thing. We have to do that? Oh, but at your bidding, I'll do it. And out they went throw the nets over what happened big load of fish right boom we catch it and Peter this is the Lord and the Bible says and Peter fell down where did he fall down he fell down a pile of fish if the boat was loaded he fell down in a pile of fish and he said Lord depart from me for I am a sinful man when he comes into the presence of the Holy, he hides. Hide. That's what we want to do. Look further. How, how do we fix it? But the Lord called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said to you, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Now, did God know whether he ate or not? course he knew it of course he knew it but man does need to come to the place of realization of his own sin and so God points it out to him he points that out to him and he says now now what's happened shame has come in we try oh, oh but look who told you were naked have you eaten the tree that commanded you not to eat the man said Oh, there's a problem. That's going to get him off the hook right here. It's the woman. I say it all the time. The woman who you gave me. <laughs> By the way, it doesn't work today, and it didn't work then. Yeah, right? Oh, oh, the woman you gave to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? Oh, okay. The woman, the woman said, the serpent is here. I mean, it is shifting the blame, is it not? And do we do that? Oh, we absolutely do that. We're squirming. We're squirming. We hide from it. We try and shift it, rationalize it, get it off of our plate, do whatever it is that we can do. Now, unfortunately, I've put these out of order, so quickly go back up to the very first one that says what they did in verse 7. The first one, eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together. In other words, what were they before? They were naked and not ashamed. Now they are ashamed, and they've destroyed God's picture there and they're shamed. How do we try and fix it? We cover it up. We hide. We shift the blame to others. Recognize these things. The real important thing is, though, how does God fix it? What are the ways that God fixes it? That's what we really want to know. How does, how does God fix it? Look at, look at verse 15. Let's just go right there for some solution today. 
this is great. And this is, this is what I meant. If you actually see what God does, you'll be amazed. Look, I will put, probably I'll read the whole paragraph. He's speaking to the serpent first and, and uh, bees of the field. You'll go on your belly. Then verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Wow, is God in a fix or what? I mean, here these people have done this thing and we're looking at how God fixes it. I can just see God now and I'm being ridiculous and sacrilegious, aren't I? Oh, what am I going to do now? I don't know what I'm going to do now. How am I going to fix this? You know what the first thing you read? I mean, just right out of the gate. How does God fix it? He declares he is in sovereign control. God is in sovereign control right from the get-go. There's not even a, a breath that is taken when he starts saying what he says to the serpent, when he starts saying what he says to the woman. He is in absolute control. How does God fix it? God is never rocked off of his throne. God is always seated in the heavens, and he does all of his good pleasure. No matter what happens to you in your life, what happens to me in my life, there is the rock of our salvation. And that description is very intentional. That's, that's a rock bigger than the rock of Gibraltar that doesn't move. God is always in control, and he has not been taken by surprise in this situation. I will, I will, you will, you will. God is in complete sovereign control. But then take a look at what he does. Verses 22 to 24. Very quickly here, 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now let's just snuff him out. That would have been me probably. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. There's an implication, but let's continue to read. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from, uh, from which he had was taken. He drove out the man and the... And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What did God do? God dispensed grace immediately. God in his grace. Now this is actually... This is actually the first example of the promise that he made in verse 15. Say it again. This is actually the first example of the promise he made in verse 15. First the promise, and then I'll come back here. The promise that he made, take a look. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, that is the offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
Now, theologians have looked for all kinds of ways and exact examples of what this is. But we believe that it speaks of the Lord Jesus. And he shall bruise your head. He will pound on you. And you shall bruise his heel. The, the word bruise in the ESV is correct because it's the same Hebrew word in each place. But in Hebrew, there is a repetitive nature to the tense. He will bruise you over and over and over again. And you will bruise him over. We're going to battle over and over, over and over again. Until there's a final death that it points to. Because you have done this, you've sinned against a holy God. You are now separated, hiding that's why Paul in Ephesians says we've been reunited. You're, you're trying to cover up. That's why, again, he says the eyes of the natural man are, are, are blinded. Um, he says that what you've done is in, in treating, you're not loving your neighbor. You're shifting the blame to your neighbor. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but such is good that it may give grace to those who hear it. Treat your neighbor. You have broken it. You are separated. You are by nature a child of wrath, and God's wrath abides on you. Now back to 22 to 24. God says, oh, I love my creation too much. Why, if he goes back into that garden and he finds the tree of life and he lives forever, the implication is he will live in that state forever. I'm going to put an angel, a cherubim there. He's going to be facing every single direction to make sure he can't sneak up one way or the other. He's going to have a sword in his hand. And I, God, by my grace and mercy, in that while we were yet, what? In that while they were yet sinners, Christ died for them because he said the offspring is Jesus. Therefore, I'm going to put a guard that makes sure he can't do this one thing and be eternally separated from me. That's grace. That's grace. That is grace. So what will you do with it? I hope that this reaches down into the practicalities and that you see in all of the ways that we are broken, that in the midst of the brokenness is grace. In the midst of the brokenness is grace. In the midst... Oh, wait a minute. In the midst of the brokenness is also an opportunity to speak grace. You see what we're doing? We're ambassadors for Christ. That person that you're talking to is Adam. That person that you're talking to is Eve. I don't know what they've done. I don't know where the sin is. But I do know that wherever that sin is, is brokenness. Is brokenness. 
and where we see last week we saw God's design and what we were missing this week we're seeing the opposite side of the coin but it still leads to the gospel conversation I don't care who you're talking to they're broken and if you will just look into the situation of where they're broken then once again and I really appreciate Matt Rogers if you're listening uh, your congregation I love this simple thing and I want you to get it so I might repeat it another 10,000 times wherever they're broken you can say I remember a time in my life when I remember a time in my life when maybe it's identical or maybe it's just a, a, a related thing this person was lonely. I remember a time in my life when I was lonely. I remember a time in my life. Number two, but Jesus. But Jesus. I remember a time in my life when, but Jesus. Number three, and now. I remember a time in my life when, but Jesus. And now, you can do this. You don't need to be the Ph.D. in apologetics. You don't need to have a couple of six guns that can answer any question about the universe and the earth, how old it is and, and how many guards there were at the resurrection. There was a time in my life when, but Jesus, and now. Pray with me, would you? Lord, I pray that we would get it. I pray that we'd get it. Oh God, that we would be transformed by the gospel. Sin has done its dirty deed. The evil one is rampant. And yet you are sovereignly in control and nothing takes you by surprise. You are always good and you accomplish all your good purposes. Help us to put away sin. Help us to recognize that we value other things more than we value you. And then help us with great compassion to do the same thing. That is to see other people who are broken. And to say, I remember when in my life, but Jesus has brought me out and now this is who I am and Bob Sarah Phyllis Mac Ruth you can too you can too in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us in Jesus name make it